I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land, and for this episode in particular, the Gadigal people. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. They work hand in hand with each other, you know, entertainment and hospitality. They're, they're really about providing enjoyment for people on a day out and night out. And it's been such a shame for them to not be working hand in hand recently. It's just been so difficult to regain that sort of symbiosis of people fully enjoying a night out with them, with their friends and their family. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Matt O'Kine is an actor, writer and presenter and one of Australia's favourite comedians. His ability to find relatable humour in the everyday and his inclusive way of communication makes for a very hard-to-beat combo. With plenty of time in our ears over Triple J's breakfast radio in the past, and today on Matt and Alex's All Day Breakfast, it's an honour to have Matt keep the headphones on for just that little bit longer. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining me. Shante, thanks for having me. Uh, it's such a pleasure. Matt, you released your debut novel, Being Black and Chicken and Chips. Congratulations. I'm listening to it on Audible, and it's really got the whole gamut of emotions, the mark of a really great read. How did you find the process of writing it? Writing is something that I have a real love-hate relationship with over, that I've discovered over the last um, couple of years. You, you know, I find writing very similar to uh, cleaning your room um, where I hate cleaning my room, but I love being in a clean room. So that's the way I feel about writing. It's, you know, when you're staring at a mountain, figuring out how the heck you're going to get to the top of it, it's really daunting. And when you're sort of trudging along, just trying to keep one foot in front of the other, and you sort of get to really steep bits and you're puffing and you think, what is, What am I doing? Why am I doing this? Um, when you get to the top of the mountain and you get the view, you're like, you know what? I'm glad I did this. And getting down is usually pretty fun. Yeah, I can imagine. And I, I imagine it's not logical that you kind of write from start to finish. What I love about the book is there's such um, poignant moments that are really, that bring you back to being, I don't know, younger and a teenager where, where, you know, something super small was huge in your life at the time and you really bring that to the forefront. Did you kind of just go back to moments and that you remembered and kind of go from there and kind of then it was it pieced together? Yeah, I mean, look, so the, my book is about a 12-year-old boy who's trying to start high school while his mum dies of cancer and there's some really obvious sort of anchorage points that happened to me in my life that I was able to use as a launch pad for my character, Mike's. And, you know, a lot of it is grounded in reality and a lot of it is, is grounded in um, just fun and fiction. So there are some really key moments that I dove into when it comes to the revolve around the death of my mum. And those moments, recalling those at times are pretty sad, you know, like I got, I got a bit sad um, when I, had to kind of really dig deep and remember the 12-year-old kid who was sort of experiencing all that. But, um, and, and, you know, like there's moments where my, you know, the character finds his mum in the shower and they go to hospital and all that sort of stuff. And I mean, all that, all that stuff happened to me. So it was, so those are the moments that really stand out to me as some of the most uh, important and grounding moments for me personally as a reader um, and sort of the more impactful moments uh, that I would hope to sort of have on any readers who are, are unfamiliar with me and 
uh, my story. But then there's also just really little things that the character is obsessed about, which are such universal themes that doesn't matter whether your parent is dying or not. You're still just a 12-year-old trying to fit in. And there are things that you want and recognition that you want that I really wanted to make sure that I still captured. And that's kind of the beauty of the character, I think, in the book is that, you know, he's still just a 12-year-old boy. Um, and even though this terrible thing is happening, he also, you know, his mum is is sort of slowly dying around him and he's fully aware of it. But he also just wants the internet. And for girls to like him and to, you know, sit at the cool bench at school and to be a good athlete. Like, I think people forget that life keeps going, um, around, you know, when it, even though a lot of the time tragedy can happen, life still keeps going around it. And certainly when you're 12, you just want to fit in and be like everyone else. Yeah, that. So absolutely true. And like you've said in the book a few times, looking for porn or looking for whatever it may be. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> like this was back in the day where where porn was like you, like you literally had to, it wasn't just like searching on the internet. You had to literally search for it in like bushes and weird places that, that you'd stumble across it and be like, oh, my God, what is this, nudity? This is so full on. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to still capture the nostalgia of that. Very much so. I think you did. I, I was born in 84, so similar timing. And there's so many things that you bring up in the book that I can really relate to. Um, and I think that, like I said, the, the mark of a great read is when you're, you're listening on the train and you like snort, you know, whatever drink coffee out of your nose into your mask because you, you literally didn't see something coming. Or at other times, I've definitely had a couple of tears and, and tried to like, you know, be really subtle on the you're on the train going like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm crying. So it's a fantastic read and uh, really well done. And I'm so glad that you um, popped it on Audible and we can hear your voice because that really changes um, how it comes across as well. Yeah, look, that was a fun experience. It's, it's so tiring having to um, record a book. I thought I'd be able to do it really easily. But, you know, by the by the end of the day, you're sort of stumbling over sentences and you're going like, Christ, who wrote this? Why would you say it like that? This is such a tongue twister, you know? Um, so there were lots of moments like that. I remember being all fancy, like oh, I wanted to look good on my first day of recording it. And I turn up to the studio and I start um and I start recording this uh the you know, the first chapter, and almost immediately, like I wanted to feel good about myself. So I was wearing like a nice jacket, almost immediately the the audio engineer just stops me and goes, um, sorry sorry, you need to take that jacket off because every time you move, it goes. <laughs> so like the whole first, like it was like a shiny kind of rain jacket. So every time I was talking, I was trying to like put my body into it and everything and all people were hearing was like, <laughs> of me like it's just rustling up this shiny jacket. So yeah, suddenly I was stripped down to the old t-shirt and jeans and um and I was much more comfortable at least. So yeah, it was it was a fun experience. No confidence whatsoever, but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 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 exactly. Look terrible, but that's the beauty of audio. It's uh, something that my radio days taught me very well. <laughs> very true. Can I ask um if it's okay how you found your way into the kind of career of comedy and where did it all start for you? 
Um, so it was Raw Comedy, which is a comedy competition run by Melbourne Comedy Festival. And about that time was sponsored by Triple J. And um, I entered because I was studying a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Acting. And um, I was fresh out of high school and I really just wanted to get a head start on one of the modules within the comedy, co- which within the acting course, which was a stand-up comedy, um, you know, section, six weeks of uh, doing it, um, a six-week course really within the, uh, within the, within the bigger degree that I was doing. And so I went and signed up and I was very nervous. I didn't want to tell anyone. And we were at my friend, my friend Arthur's place in the afternoon. And I kind of admitted to everyone that I was due to do a comedy show that night. Um, and I asked if a couple of people could, if, well, I asked if I could borrow Arthur's shirt to go and perform T-shirt because I didn't have any cool clothes. And um, I asked if one of my friends would mind driving me there so that I could have a few drinks. And um, I went and I did it and I won my heat and I won the semifinal and then I got to the the state final and I came second. But, um, but I got... I got uh, accepted to go to the national final in Melbourne Town Hall in front of 1,500 people. And that was my fourth ever gig at that stage because I did one warm-up gig in between that, um, in between the state final and then the national final. So it was my fourth ever gig and I bombed so hard. I was terrible. Oh, my gosh. I was up against people who'd been doing it for, like, years, you know, and I that really sort of threw my confidence for a little while and... I went back to just keep doing the the local club circuit in Brisbane and sort of refound my feet and then just kept going. And, and then in, after I finished my acting degree, I moved down to Sydney and sort of started to make a real a meal out of it. Wow. I mean, how do you, when you start and, and going into those heats and how do you work out what your kind of routine is going to be? I mean, is this something that you kind of had tried out in general, as in when you're just with your mates and you're having a chat and you find what gets laughs, how do you put a, a kind of a set together when it's your first time doing it? So you follow the rules that I have followed my entire life when it comes to creating anything. Um, and most people sort of ask, like, where do you get your jokes from or how do you know what to say and all this sort of stuff. But the thing that I find the most useful the most useful tip in anything that I do, and it's something that I'm constantly reminding myself of, is just do what you think is good and just do what you think is funny and just do what you think is interesting and just make the music that you think sounds good and write the lyrics that you want to listen to. Just entertain yourself and trust that your tastes will match the tastes of others. And I sincerely believe that this applies to almost any any business or facet of life in which production is need to be needed to be acquired by an audience or consumed by a consumer. Um, and I'm sure that chefs would do the same thing or winemakers would do the same thing. Um, you know, authors do the same thing. You just got to taste your own, you got to trust your own palate and hope that other people like the flavors that you like and then go from there. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It's, to me. I mean, I talk to people about drinks and wine the same way I would hope someone would talk to me about something that perhaps I'm not so familiar with as well. So I think that that makes a lot of sense. Back in those days, and you said you wanted to be able to 
not drive home from that first gig. What gave you that bit of Dutch courage? What was the drink of choice then? <laughs> this was back in the day where um, you would pay $13 for a jug of 4X Bitter um, at the Paddo Tavern, I remember very clearly. And I tell you what, you know, when when you're 18 or 19 years old and you're going to do a stand-up gig, for sometimes no money, sometimes 50 bucks, and sometimes a jug of beer. That jug of beer is worth more than $1,000 will be worth later on, you know? It's just, it's that, it's that, it's the excitement that you're doing something different. You, you know, you walk down these dark stairs into this sort of cavernous comedy room, and it was like I'd entered a whole new world that I'd never been a part of before, and I'd never seen stand-up comedy before I did my first gig, and suddenly... I'd seen it on TV, but I'd never been to a club. And when I walked in there and, and yeah, the excitement that you have, it, it's, it's an event, you know, it, it's such, it was such a nice thing to be a part of. And it's a thing that I've remained a part of a culture that I remained a part of for 18 years. Yeah, huge. And to be fair, Forex bitter, classy. I am such a bitter person. <laughs> hey, I'm not, I'm I, not mad at I that. always. <laughs> I always go back to when I'm always back in Queensland and I always will get a Forex bitter just to remind me of my roots, mate, where I came from. It's a delicious, smashable beer and I totally, I would never say no to a Forex bitter. So I'm with you on that one. Uh, Yeah. Matt, you have a plethora of awards and career highlights, but what's the grunt work that we don't see? What's the day-to-day grind that really is the foundations of making you and making your successful career? You know, I think people neglect the business side of things when you um, are looking at anyone whose career is seemingly successful or on the rise in the arts. Um, There is a lot of, I mean, I'll say hustle, but only for lack of better word, that you, there's a lot of hard work that you put into the finished shiny product and a lot of mistakes along the way and a lot of rejection and a lot of revising, you, you're constantly failing so that you can learn from the failure to make the best product that people will eventually pay the money for. So every time, you know, a lot of people might say, oh, you know, I've, I've seen every show of yours for the last three years or five years or whatever, and it's, it's awesome because it's so meaningful, but they, they see the finished product. They more often than not don't see you bombing on a Tuesday night in front of six people because you're just trying to figure out five minutes worth of material or they don't see you, um, you know, up at midnight finishing off the final chapters of a draft of your book that is actually going to end up getting burnt anyway because you need to start again because it's not connecting with uh, you're not connecting with the characters the way you wanted to. So there's just a lot of that sort of grind. Um, I'm not going to say or pretend that the job is difficult uh, not 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 difficult that it's that it's somehow really um you know strenuous or stressful or hard that it, it's just you know it's it's a sort of pain that you put yourself through because you like the final product so um it's not for everyone and if anyone thinks it's easy then they're probably going to be disappointed and probably quit um you got to really love it so you've got to love the failures. You've got to actually love bombing in front of six people on a Tuesday night and because that's the sort of growth. 
Um, so yeah, if, if you're, if you're sort of fragile ego and you don't like getting told no, and you don't like people going, no, this isn't good enough. This is bad. Or you need to work harder. You need to be funnier. Then it's not for you. But if that sort of stuff doesn't scare you, then it becomes quite rewarding and exciting in a way. Yeah. I can imagine, especially with the fact that a lot of what you're doing is putting a lot of yourself into it, whether you're drawing from life whether it be in stand-up or, or your book or your show, you're adding a lot of yourself. So those rejections and those times where, you know, like you said, you feel like you're bombing, it, it must be hard not to take a little bit of it personally as well. And so I can imagine that it is just being hard on yourself and and a lot of the, the path to being successful is just, you know, agonising over the actions you're making and the stories you're telling. So um, anyone that's as successful as you are, I know would have worked their absolute ass off for it. So, um, but tell me a little bit about being on tour because you have visited so many places, so many small towns. Um, what do you do when you go out to do a gig, say in a small town? Do you just go to the local pub for dinner at some point or do you just stay in your room or, you know, is there any small towns that have really surprised you around Australia? Heaps of small towns have surprised me for their, um, their food and wine culture. Launceston is somewhere that I've really loved and Hobart I've really loved to go for um, for food and bev. Um, mostly when I go to a town, I'll often find out where the local microbreweries are and I'll try to drop in and taste a bunch of samples of the, uh, that are on tap and usually do some writing while I'm there. Um, I mean, I have, a, I have a, just the most amazing memory of a day in New York that I had once when I Googled you know, best croissant in New York. Um, and there was a place in Brooklyn and I, and I remember walking across the Brooklyn bridge to go and find this particular croissant. And then they were doing this special where you could get three courses for $25 at a whole bunch of different restaurants that were participating in this sort of food festival that they were running. So after I got my croissant, I ran I ran back over the I caught the subway back from Brooklyn into town and went and got a three course meal by myself um at a restaurant and then I finished it off with some drinks at a bar. And I love doing the the eating and drinking thing by myself. Um I love in London it's such an incredible vibe in Soho and a place like that where, and I have to say that Australia doesn't cater to this as much yet and certainly regional towns don't, but the solo dining experience is kind of underutilized there. And so, you know, I love going to places where say, even in Australia, I went to um, West End in Brisbane. There was a great little uh, izakaya where I, you know, where they were doing skewers and stuff like that, where you're sitting at a small bar and you can just really contently sit by yourself and enjoy it. Um, so those are the experiences that I really like when I'm out and about. Um, and yeah, a big, big, you know, Melbourne is somewhere where I'll always, I'll almost always go and hit up dumplings in, in Chinatown. Um, and very, and I'll also always get a, uh, a South Melbourne market dim sim while I'm there. And what else? Adelaide, I was there recently and they've got some great microbreweries around town. Brisbane have got the microbreweries and some really nice places in the valley to sit down and eat. So yeah, I, I, that's the first, my first stop is always brewery. And then from there, decide of where I'm going to get uh, a, a good meal from. Yeah. I love that because 
you know, food and drink is so ingrained in culture. So by kind of seeking out kind of what people are eating and drinking, you really get to know kind of the little area that you're in. And then, and, and like you said, when you're dining solo, how great is it to just take it all in? I've always said that as well, that when you're just eating and drinking on your own, you're paying attention to so much more that's happening rather than trying to carry a conversation and the experience of everything, tactile, everything is um, so like just turned up that little bit more when you're solo. And I agree in Australia, we just don't do it as enough or it's a bit weird and people feel sorry for you. And it's so strange because yeah, overseas, you can sit at the wood and have a drink and the bartender will chat to you and all leave you alone. So I totally agree. I love dining solo. Yeah. And I think you want those places where, you know, a lot of places, the way that we set out restaurants here is for two people or four people dining. And so you get sort of get placed if you're by yourself at a small table with multiple chairs and you don't want to necessarily be reminded that you're by yourself when you're in that position. Whereas if you've got really nice bar seating or window bench seating where you can look out and just stare at the world. I love that. I love people watching in those moments. So Yeah, I would encourage places. I mean, God, it's hard enough setting up a restaurant, let alone one to cater specifically for solo diners. But, um, but, you know, think about your solo diners when you are uh, setting up those places. Yeah, I totally agree with you. It is um, kind of an untouched resource a little bit. But um, we very, very briefly met at Pinot Palooza, one of the amazing events that Rebel puts on. Can I assume that you like Pinot Noir or were you dragged along to the event by someone else? I was dragged along by my partner. Pinot Noir is not my favorite uh, <gasps> wine of choice. I'm not a huge red drinker, so I, I. But look, trust me, I drink everything, and I and I always enjoy being out and about, and um, you know, being in crowds and and doing fun things. So any chance we could get, I was there in a heartbeat. Um, I mean, I, I found Pinot Palooza a little bit better. There was one game of Rones that we went to a while back as well, which uh, no slide on you know, the heavier sort of reds from the Rhone Valley, but I would by the end of a, you know, three hour session tasting those big heavy reds, I was dying for a beer. (laughs) I was so thankful whenever anyone had even just the, the, the night, like the lightest white on hand, I was like diving in for that. Um, So Pinot definitely, I'm much better at drinking Pinot over a, you know, a three hour festival than some of the Shiraz and stuff. Yeah, I mean, Pinot is is a little easier on the palate. But um, if you ever have a look at those events and you look at the people that are working in the events, particularly winemakers, they've always got a beer on hand because that's what they tend to be drinking in between tasting wine. So I don't think you're wrong there. You really do need a little bit of a quaffer, that refreshing ale to get you through. It's totally. Mate, all these winemakers, I remember being at um, Margaret River where um, with, uh, what was it called? Oh, um, what's the event called? Uh, Gourmet Escape. And we always go to uh, Amelia Park Wines for um, like their events. They've had some really, really amazing events with some, uh, I think the last one I went to was with possibly Matt Stone and Joe Barrett. Um, and Jeremy, uh, one of the winemakers there, I walk in and we've sort of become friends over the last couple of years, um, him and his partner, Danielle. And and the last couple of times I've walked in and he's like, you know, do you want a red or a white? And I'm like, mm, have you got a beer? And he's always like, oh, God, I'd, I'd love a beer right now, but I have to drink wine because it's the wine event. And I know all of those winemakers love drinking beer more than they love drinking wine. I guess because they're drinking wine like all day, every day, tasting wine. So, you know, it's probably the same as me you know, wanting to sit down and just watch a 
really boring. Like if someone says, Hey, do you want to watch some stand up? I'm like, Oh, can we watch Selling Houses Australia instead? Like, <laughs> I'm kind of not into that right now. <laughs> Absolutely. It, and, you know, and, and when they are tasting wine, they're thinking about it and they need to have a comment on it. And it's kind of like just having a beer gives you the opportunity to just go, Oh, can I just enjoy this? Yeah, totally right. It's like when I watch a movie, I'm like, I can't enjoy it anymore because I'm like, oh, that was an interesting choice. Oh, gee, that would have ramped up the budget a bit. Oh, I wonder why they used that actor for this part. And, like, I just can't enjoy it at all. So that's why I'm in true crime and uh, and lifestyle. <laughs> You're completely ruined. That's so sad. <laughs> so what's in your booze pantry at home? What are the staples of the O'Kine house? So uh, I've, I've got a lot of Cooper's Mild Ale is my sort of stock standard fridge beer of choice. Is that the blue one? Uh, that is the no, orange one. Orange. So it's a mid-strength yep. one. Um, and I just find that to be a really good sort of yeah, any day drinker. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's my sort of beer at home. Um, my partner's very big on the Amelia uh, – no, sorry, Audrey Wilkinson Shiraz and the Chardonnay, so when we're just sort of looking every day. And also the Little Giant – um, Shiraz has kind of been the everyday standard bread. Um, so when we sort of ramp it up to more special occasions for the reds, um, there was one, uh, there's a pot de pear, uh, that I got from Mike, Mike Venny, who, uh, hooked me up at PMV, um, who pointed me to that one, the pot de pear, which I find is a really nice kind of skin contact. I believe it's a Sav Blanc, um, yeah, I think it's a sad blong, but obviously with the skin contact and the yeah, it sort of sort of sits a little bit differently to your standard uh, crisp sav, which I'm I know you know, just in case to any listeners. Um, and then we are big. Um, we like Brookie's gin. Oh, I love that gin. That's fantastic. Yeah, isn't it? it's really good. Really, really good with um, Fever Tree lightly uh, the light the lighter um, Fever Tree. Um, and then we enjoy a margarita as well. So we've always got those ingredients on hand. Perfect. I was going to say, if, you, if you, there's not a spirit that you drink, I'd be disappointed. But a margie's kind of, you can't go past them, can you? It's such a good drink. That is that is our stock standard. You know, probably once a fortnight we'll sit down, we'll play Yahtzee and we'll have a, a margarita. And I've been really enjoying the jalapeno margaritas that have been kind of floating around a few menus um, that I've, you know, encountered recently. So a, a bit of spice in your margie or it never goes astray. Yeah. I did one the other day with lots of fresh ginger and it was like spicy, hot, fresh Ooh. ginger. And that was good too. I was like, cause I don't mind a bit of heat. And that was pretty good too. I would, I would never have liked that a, a little while ago, but I'm so glad that my palate's kind of, yeah, accepting a lot more things than it was say when I was in my early twenties. I don't know if it's my palate or whether I can just afford to taste different things. Now, like, you know, someone, someone was asking me like, when did you get into food? And it's like, um, when I started making money, cause you can't <laughs> like suddenly you're eating these different things and you're trying all these different things and you can afford to kind of miss. Whereas like there was the, there was, you know, back in the day when you're sort of on a tighter of budget, there's some incredible cheap eats, but then, um, yeah, they sort of seem to revolve around bigger, bolder flavors, um, like your sort of Asian cuisines or your Mediterranean sort of Lebanese foods. Um, and they're sort of quite, you know, there's such stronger flavors. And I've, for some reason, it's like, 
more expensive food seems to be subtler at times. I don't know. I don't know what the what the go is, but it's uh, opened up my palate. Yeah, and I think also when you're kind of going out for, like you said, some like really northern Thai food, it seems a bit unachievable to do it at home because there's so many flavors, and you know that that person's been doing it for how long. Whereas when you have a really nice, say, cut of lamb or cut of steak, and it's served just with like really beautiful mashed potatoes and some char-grilled broccolini or whatever, you're like, oh, I think that that could be achievable. If I can get that quality steak, maybe I could give that a go at home. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and, yeah, cooking at home has definitely opened up when you can – I mean, it's a shame. You, it's, there's, look, I'm not saying that there's – that food is classist, but there is elements of of – there is definitely a correlation with money and food that I – you know, I, I don't know whether – is talked about enough, really. Yeah, I know what you mean. And, and even like you said, even buying those ingredients to take home or being more mindful of what you can. If if you're feeding a family of 10 uh, and, you know, you can get Coles meat, why you go, you know, you think, oh, well, you know, and it's on special particularly, I can see that why people perhaps wouldn't go to the butcher and and ask how much, you know, 17 sausages is going to be because you actually do have to have a conversation with the butcher about that. It's not just on the plate saying, you know, on a, on a styrofoam board saying this is how much it's going to be, right? Well, that's it. Like, I mean, I love the sausages from my butcher, but they, and they're really good. And I absolutely love them. But there was also, there were also $12 for three of them. And it's like, I'm glad that I can afford to do that. But uh, a young, uh, you know, I couldn't have, I couldn't have done that when I was, you know, a dirt poor comedian back in, um, you know, 10 years ago. And so, yeah, you, you, the sort of produce definitely opens up the more money you make and the opportunities to go and be in New York on tour and try these, you know, be able to 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 to, to go and sit by yourself and spend $40 on lunch is, you know, these are things that I don't take for granted and I'm really appreciative of. Yeah, and it's good, to, like it's always good to remind yourselves about that, right? And, and like you said, uh, I actually find my butcher is much cheaper than going to the bigger brand um, supermarkets, but that's because I'm not scared if it if I choose something that's going to be really expensive, I just pay whatever it is. And I think that that is the conversation is not everybody wants to have the conversation of how much is that going to cost me, you know, because they're a bit afraid of that. God, there's some steaks that I've like, I've been like, oh, that looks like a good piece of steak. I'll get that, please. And they're like, oh, that'll be $23. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I'm like, oh, no. Like, But you pay it, don't you? You're just like. Yeah, well, then you're like, oh, my God. Like, uh, yeah. (laughs) It happened to me the other day, actually. Um, But I tell you what, cooking for a little, like for a kid, geez, that's that's rough. You put so much effort into cooking for your two-year-old and they just say, I don't want it. And that's the end of the conversation. You're like. Well, do you think you can at least try it? Because I just spent twelve bucks on these sausages, kid. Um, but, but yeah, so that's certainly been interesting. But um, no, I look, I love my, I love my beer, I love my wine, and I love, uh, love my spirits. So I um, I've always got a well-stocked fridge and pantry with those sort of things. It sounds like you're drinking well at the house. Uh, everyone has that one drink that's kind of sent them over the edge, and they can't stand to be around now. Do you have that one drink that you just will never touch again? Do you know what? No, but what I will say is I went through a stage of drinking Boilermakers quite a lot, and it's actually the name of uh, the, my the name that I rap under, uh, Boilermakers. Uh, of course, you can get the latest Boilermakers EP on Spotify or wherever you get your music. But um, a Boilermaker being a shot of whiskey, I usually have a single ice cube uh, and then a beer chaser. So 
um, or, you know, you sip the whiskey, you don't sort of just shot it. Um, but I found that when I get on a roll with those, it's always bad news. And I need to like, and I, and I always wake up with a pretty rotten headache in the morning. So um, I went, I've had to cut back on any sort of whiskey drink because it just doesn't, it doesn't compute with my body anymore. Um, although every now and then I will still sort of say, have a nice Lafroy. Um, Something peaty. Yeah, I like my peat. Um, I like the peat smoke. And uh, another name that I wrapped under, actually. Um, and, yeah, so I, I'll, I'll usually choose something like that if I am going to ever indulge, which is about a once-a-year thing now. I, I know what you mean about whiskey. I'm, I love whiskey, and I, uh, I've i had a couple of moments of watching Sons of Anarchy and drinking a, a double whiskey, thinking I was all that, and then uh, it not ending so well. So I'm very yeah, cautious. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's always the TV shows that do it. Like, it's like, oh, yeah, like it makes you feel sophisticated, you know, like, so, like you're out of Mad Men, and then, like, you're like, no, you're not. You're just drinking straight spirits and you're going to hurt your head. So, <laughs> totally. um, so yeah, I, that, that's been my, although I've been enjoying the occasional whiskey sour recently, which are, uh, you know, usually a bourbon whiskey base. And I've, I've quite enjoyed those. Yeah. It's that, it's, if you're a Margie drinker, you don't mind a sour, eh? It's yeah. that kind of juicy, sour, acidic element that just, keeps you wanting to go back for that other sip. But, um, you know, as, as gigs are hopefully firing up again in 2022, what, what are we going to see happen for you? What are you looking forward to in 2022? Look, I'd sworn off comedy for a little while, but I've started to get a little, uh, you know, bug to, to get back in there um, and kind of do it on my own terms. So I might see if I want to do some gigs again. Um, I... Yeah, I might start jumping up again. I'm not sure. It was very difficult to even want to do it when, during the whole pandemic. Um, and especially because the, yeah, it just, it just, the uncertainty over even announcing a gig and then canceling a gig. It, I don't think that people realize how much that's been playing with artists' mental health and their, and not just the artists, but the team around you that put so much work into saying, you know, hey, this is happening. The, the show is going to happen on the, you know, whatever date. And it's going to be at this venue and the venue's putting up posters and you're printing posters and you're telling all your friends and you're getting on the material ready. And then it just cancels. And all the people who put in all this work to make it happen never get to see the reward of the hard work. It's like, you know, as I was saying before, you get to the top of the mountain, but the viewing platform is closed and you're like, what the hell did I do this for? And so um, that pushed me away from wanting to do it for a long time. So, you know, looking back on it, I'm like, oh, seeing how the rest of the year unfolds, I, I might be willing to jump back up again and see, see what I do, how I, how I feel about it, but, but probably on my own terms, which would be smaller shows, not placing the pressure on myself to need to sell tickets to sign, try and sell out, you know, big, huge theaters, but actually just doing it because I love it again. Um, so that's going to be a little aim that I think, and, and maybe mixing a bit more music with it. Um, so not just doing comedy, but maybe trying to mix a bit of, bit of music and a bit of storytelling. In fact, that's probably the biggest goal that I've got for 2022 is maybe try and do shows that don't rely solely in the stand-up comedy landscape. Yeah, well, I think your fans would be thrilled to hear that. And we all know that, you know, going to those gigs where they were a little bit smaller and a bit more intimate are some of the kind of 
the best events that a lot of people go to and, and things get bigger than Ben Purr after that. So that sounds pretty awesome. And like you said, you're a great storyteller and, and you've got so many stories. So I think that in any format that you decided to deliver those, people would be pretty thrilled to buy a ticket to that. Yeah, I'm stoked. And look, I'm really, I'm also just really excited about the hospitality scene hope opening back up again um, because they work hand in hand with each other, you know, entertainment and hospitality. They're, they're really about providing enjoyment for people on a day out and night out. And it's been such a shame for them to not be working hand in hand recently. It's just been so difficult to regain that sort of symbiosis of people fully enjoying a night out with them, with their friends and their family, you know, being able to go to have a drink and then go to a restaurant and then go to a show. I think we've all kind of forgotten that that's, that's the potential of what uh, hospitality and nighttime scene uh, can offer. And it's just been, yeah, really, really minimized recently. So I'm looking forward to it all opening back up because those are the nights that I remember the most. And those are the things that I love doing when I get the opportunity to leave my um, grizzly little two-year-old at home and, and really hit the town. Absolutely. Those moments where, especially I said the other day, something about, you know, popping into a restaurant for reservations, but then you're like, should we have a pre-dinner drink? Should we go and see a show or something? And it's the spontaneity of being able to go, let's keep going. This is so much fun. And these days it's just so regimented and it's like, oh, it's a bit brutal. No, I know. There's, yeah, there's no... Yeah, there's no there's no spontaneity anymore. You got to book where you're going, and you've you got to sit at a certain table, a certain place away from each other. It's it's certainly taken the fun out of it. But I've got hope that it'll all change. But yeah, I also got pessimism about it because we could also be in another two years in all of this. So, oh my lord, we've got to find we've got to find ways to change and adapt. And <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. But um, I always ask everybody if you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? So we, I think I know a couple of yours already, but you never know. Yeah, look, so um, my beer of choice would be the Seven Mile Brewing Cali Cream. I absolutely love that one. And I am just such a huge fan of, um, yeah, of that particular drink. So that that one's out of Ballina and I'm a big fan of that. Um, I really just enjoy a... Nice, not too funky, but a little bit kind of uh, not too, not too. Okay, well, look, I, I'm going to split my second drink with either a really nice natural Chardonnay or just a really classic Chardonnay that has a little bit of that malification and, you know, butteriness to it. Um, so I quite like that as a second drink. And that would be my standard kind of meal accompaniment. And then I'm going to go with a really nice salted rim margarita for my third drink perfect all occasions i can get on board with all of those three things and i think that is a very smart choice for life oh yeah that's my night out a margie to start off with then we go to the restaurant i'll have a beer while i choose uh my food and then i'll have a nice glass of chardonnay natural or not to uh to enjoy with it i reckon i can probably help you out with that actually What's that? Oh yeah, you join me with you with you join me on that night, would you? No, no, no. I I feel like if you come and see us at Key sometime, oh uh, yeah, I'll be able well, just sort you out for your for all your beverages, and and we'll have a fantastic evening looking after you. <laughs> would absolutely love to do that. Let's go. <laughs> Uh, it's been such a true pleasure having you on my humble little podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Matt. It's been amazing. Thanks for making the time. And hopefully we will see you out and about in the restaurant scenes, maybe at the Pado Tavern. That's not off the cards. <laughs> yeah, jug of Forex on me.
<laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Shante. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at Over a Glass Pod and contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.